welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I'm Babs Rolls Ivy. It is Women's History Month, and I'm so delighted to have my friend, my sister friend, and D9 sister, Dr. Shereen Mason, who, who, who is the inaugural holder of the Robert R. Uh, Rosenheim Endowed Chair for Nephrology at uh, the Connecticut Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Mason, who serves as a division head of nephrology, is the first woman of African diaspora and that for, and the first woman of Jamaican heritage to hold an endowed chair uh, at Connecticut Children's. Welcome. Good morning, Babs. Thank you for having me. I'm, oh, I'm starting to, I was listening and saying, who is she talking about? But I guess it's about <laughs> talking about me today. I am. I'm talking about you. I'm so delighted because, you know, we've been playing this for quite some time. <laughs> yes, we have. But you know what? Right now is the right time. Actually, before I came on, I was thinking about today, March 9th. It represents a lot of who I am. It represents my Sigma Versary, 27 years of membership in the in the spectacular sorority, Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated. So that's a congratulations. And yes. it's also represent um, national, I mean, World Kidney Day. Today is World Kidney Day for Kidney Awareness, and I'm a kidney disease doctor, so a kidney doctor, so that's even more appropriate to celebrate today. And so timing is everything. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. So you are from the great island of Jamaica. Yes. Tell yes, me Yachty. about your your tell me about growing up in Jamaica and and how did you get to be a doctor? Now I know now listen, let me tell you something. I know something about Jamaicans. I know your mama said you could be your parents probably say you could be one or two things. Or maybe three. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, or or, or maybe an engineer of some sort. <laughs> so that's interesting that you said that because my parents didn't put that pressure on me. I think the main thing starting back from my origin in Jamaica is, and I came from a working class family. My mom was an elementary school teacher. My dad was a fireman, um, but education was important. That mm -hmm. was the focus was education. Irrespective of where education took you, where that journey took you, education was utmost important. And so I don't think actually thinking about my parents, I don't think they dreamed as big as where I am right now. I think they just wanted, they knew I could do better. I could get out of certain circumstances. And I think that's what it was. Um, but yes, I didn't have that pressure, the same pressure I put on my son when I eventually had him of a Jamaican parent. <laughs> and I know you spoke to my son last year about the same topic, a similar topic. So didn't have the same pressure, but my journey growing up in Jamaica, again, working class family in Kingston, different parts of Kingston, the mountains of St. Andrew at times in Stony Hill Parish, Parish the parish of St. Andrew in Stony Hill. Um, where the love for me came up for being for being in medicine had to do with me caring and taking uh -huh. care of others. And one of the part of that had to do with, I've always been involved in civic organizations from being a little girl, whether it's through church, et cetera. And one of my earliest, um, I would say, kind of so, sort of like a sorority type organization, but for young ladies was called Girls Brigade. I know that's not familiar with most people in the US, but in the Caribbean, um, it's a, a familiar concept. It's similar to we think about like Girl Scout. Okay. And okay. so Girls Brigade was my entry into community service and serving others. And so that's where I um, was able to be exposed to just caring for others. And then combined with that, I had a love for science and love for learning, a curiosity, intellectual curiosity. And so 
that's, I think, where what my foundation was in terms of emerging into where I am right now as a physician. But interestingly enough, I never knew any physicians. I never saw a doctor a day in my life when I lived in Jamaica for the 17 years I lived there. Um, I had my vaccinations at school with the school health bus or van coming around and they gave you your vaccinations and went away. Didn't see a dentist a day in my life. But there was something in me that aspired for more than where I was, even mm -hmm. if I didn't know where, how to, why, but I wanted to do different and all. And I knew key to that was my love of sciences and just wanted to care for people. So when did you, so you all, your whole family immigrated to, uh, to America in, uh, uh, how old were you? 17, you said? Yeah, I was 17 when I came here. Yeah. And where I did you come? Right where did you come? 1991. That okay. just gave away my age, by the way, Babs. <laughs> <laughs> I came so, in the early nineties. <laughs> so, 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 where in Connecticut did y'all uh, land? Bridgeport, Bridgeport, okay. Connecticut, in the middle of winter, from sunny Jamaica to the middle of winter, Bridgeport. So Connecticut. that must have been not only just a cultural shock, but a physical weather shock. Exactly. Exactly. Now, had you come to America prior to? Have you visited no. or came? No. 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 So I think my journey coming to America is not as, you know, when it comes, when you talk to Caribbean folks in general, it may not be too much of a unique story. So um, my journey started when um, my mom left Jamaica in 1980 to look for a better life for my brother and I, and my dad was still in Jamaica. And then working through getting us here, it took us about 10 plus years to get us here to this country. Wow. Um, and so we, my brother and I resided with extended family members for years in the first, um, you know, for those 10 years from six to 17, when I was six to 17, um, just for, again, it's, I, I, you know, when I talk to other Caribbean folks and other Jamaicans, it's not much different of a story in terms of mm -hmm. migrating, you know, individuals uh, migrating maybe with parents first to set up, um, essentially set up shop and set up the life and then bring in their kids here. And that was my journey. And, um, and uh, Kay, Kay uh, Holness, our friend yeah. Kay Holness, tells a very similar story. And there's an actual yeah. name for, I think, what do they call it? Barrel, barrel, barrel? Yeah, barrel kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so, it has to do with that big barrel that they sent down with a whole bunch of goodies. <laughs> so so, so you finally get here and then you yeah. enroll in high school or you're almost finishing high school? What is the... Yeah, so that was also an interesting journey. So because of how... Um, so. Jamaican educational system is set up with a British system, right? Because we were under British colonialism before we achieved independence in 1962. Um, and so starting high school, I started earlier than what a typical age group would be here in the States. So it, it was around 10, 11, I started high school. And wow. it's, um, I was there for five years. So I graduated high school at 16 in Jamaica. But coming here and understanding how to get to the next step, the next level of my education was challenging because my mother didn't know how to. I didn't know how to. I know about these things like SATs and ACT. I heard these terms being thrown around, but didn't know what that meant. Didn't know how to go about preparing for them. Because um, growing up in Jamaica, standardized exam was not the common way. It was a lot of critical thinking with our exams. You really had to utilize a lot of critical thinking skills to navigate um, taking our exam and our courses. And so doing standardized exams wasn't a commonplace at that time. And so coming here, trying to identify where those resources were to help me to get to the next level of going to college and achieving um, additional educational attainment. Um, and so 
had to go back to high school, went to Bridgeport Central High School for a year to be able to get the resources and network and um, ability to get to the next level to get to um, a tertiary education. And so I was there for a year so that I had the guidance counselor being able to navigate how to get scholarships, how to do financial aid, because that was all a truly foreign concept. And so you and knew so, you were going to go to college. Yes, I knew I wanted to go to college and I knew I wanted to be a doctor before I left Jamaica. I just didn't know how to and what I was going to do and how I was going to get there. That is so interesting that you 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 grow up, you don't interact with doctors, you don't know any, but yet it becomes a dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think part of that dream and aspiration was having conversations with like-minded um like-minded students who were in my high school. I went to Merle Grove High School in Jamaica. It was an all-girl high school. Um, and there were other young women that like myself who wanted to achieve differently and better, even if we weren't exposed. And so having those conversations with, you know, and thinking about it being 12 and 13 and 14, right? Having those conversations about what is possible, but not knowing how to and having the mechanism to get there, but still mm -hmm. having that the conversation about the possibilities. And I think that's where those seeds were planted. So where did you go to college? You you went to UConn for yeah. undergrad? Yeah, so I've been in Connecticut ever since I came to this country, never left. So <laughs> went to UConn for undergrad um, and did my Bachelor of Science in Physiology and Neurobiology at UConn. And that was also an interesting journey, being a pre-med major, because I didn't know what that meant either <laughs> and, and trying to navigate that process. Um, and then also did my graduate degrees through UConn. Um, first, the um, School of Medicine did my MBA, uh, MD, MBA. So I did a combined degree at UConn School of Medicine to get in my medical um, doctor of medicine degree, as well as a combined master of business associate through UConn as well. So, so talk a, a lot of bit about journey. that. So, so dual degree, what was it about a dual degree that was intriguing to you? Because I don't think most people, uh, Dr. Mason thinks about, uh, MD and an MBA. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you're right, because I think, you know, one of the things, even besides an MBA, a lot of um, individuals don't know, you can do a lot of different combined degrees. So you can do an MD, JD. So you can be a, an attorney who's a physician and maybe even work in health policy. That would be another bonus to doing that. Um, you can do an MD, MPH, a master of public health along with your MD. So looking at public health and outcomes and looking at population outcomes. You can do a, um, and I may be remiss in point of MD PhD, which actually with an MD PhD, that's actually really very attractive option for pay, uh, for individuals who want to do research and focus a lot on research in terms of clinical research or on bench research, because it affords you most of your tuition being paid if you are accepted to that highly competitive program of an MD PhD. So you don't come out of medical school with a big debt like most of us do um, when you go through that line. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. My journey to doing MD, MBA. So before, when I left UConn undergrad, I actually worked for a period of a couple of years after undergrad. So from 1996 to 2001, before I went to medical school, I actually worked. So I did a couple of jobs. I worked in Science Park in a biotech startup company doing research as a research assistant in a lab. Um, and then I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Um, with AstraZeneca for a number of years. And that exposure working in research and medicine exposed me also to the business side of medicine mm. and that how much that also impacts how we take care of our patients and how we navigate insurance company, et cetera, and just managing. And so my intention in the beginning was to, you know, my initial goal was I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be a pediatrician. 
and I'm going to open up my own practice and I need to know how to run the business just because I'm a Taurus and I need to know how to manage everything and control everything. <laughs> Yay, Taurus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and be my own owner, my, the own, my own owner of my own ship. And so that was part of the intention. Okay. I, I, I did not know that part of your story that you you uh you worked in these other places before you went on to to med school. Now was that was that your intention? Was that by necessity? No, it was by God's design. Okay, <laughs> so not my intention. <laughs> so part of that journey. So when I was in undergrad, um, my my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband, we welcomed a little bundle of joy in the middle of my undergrad experience. So our son Isaac, um he decided to present himself early <laughs> and he was our um, blessing that came um, between my sophomore and junior year in college. Mm -hmm. And so my original intention was to go directly from college into medical school, but with this um, additional role as a mom and building a new family, um, I had to change plans. Right. And so there was a, and, and I think in looking back, I realized my life in general has been punctuated by a lot of transitions and changes which has brought me to where I am right now. Um, whether there were positive or not positive changes, but they still helped to propel me to where I am and to give me that land and space to um, to stand tall. And so I mean, our I, son- I, I think that is compelling. I, yeah. Dr. Mason, I think that's compelling that you have this baby. Y'all mm -hmm. are not married, you're in college. That's every mother, parents kind of, little bit of fear, mm -hmm. fear. You know, I got kids too, fear. <laughs> Uh, but yet you didn't, you did not allow this to become a, a stopping step for your dream. Like you just kept focused. I imagine you kept focused and the dream just got delayed a bit, but it was never, it didn't end. No, I think what I realized it was challenging. It wasn't easy by any means. I don't want to, you know, um, sugarcoat it as it was easy. It was definitely a challenge for both, you know, again, I get in that time, my, my pre-husband, because he's not my husband, um, it was very challenging. We were both college students and we were both first generation college students for our family, right? So we didn't have that roadmap and way how to figure it out. Even from being a pre-med student, I didn't know what a pre-med meant. I didn't know what I was really, I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where my resources were, but what I did know about myself, I was very determined. I was determined to prove people wrong. <laughs> So for example, when I was pregnant and I heard comments where else she's not going to make it, I'm going to prove you wrong. My determination was there. My Taurus, my Taurian trait of being stubborn <laughs> was there. And I was mission driven, even when I didn't really think about the mission all the time, I was definitely mission driven. And so I think that's what helped. Um, and then secondarily, I had a community of people that supported me, right? So that community extended beyond my mom, beyond my brother to my mother in love, right? Miss Ophelia Johnson, my husband's mom, to my um to my sister-in-law, to my brother-in-laws, to my sorority chapter members at the time at UConn and the sorority at large. So I had um and also my Jamaican community, my Jack community, Jamaican American connection in New Haven. So I had an expanded community that wouldn't let me fail. Okay. To this day, that's exactly the same theme that keeps me going despite any obstacles. Mm -hmm. So, so nephrology is the study of what is the science of what kidney disease. 
Okay. And March and is, so, is, is kidney month. Yes. And, yes. and black people, uh, people of African descent, black people uh, across the diaspora, we are, we are uniquely affected by kidney disease. Yes, we are. So interesting enough, so the American Society of Nephrology, which is, I'm a member of the American Society of Nephrology and also the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology, is a body of clinicians who um, wanted to make sure there's more awareness, more research, more education on kidney health. And one of the um, initiatives this month is talking about the 850 million people worldwide, worldwide who suffer from kidney disease. So there's a lot of, and it's a, it's a not very well talked about in, at large in terms of kidney disease in the general population, much less the minority population. And what we do know in a minority population, granted, I take care of kids, but I do have some young adults. And um, mostly in the adult world, it's because of things of complications from hypertension and diabetes that's not well controlled or not. We don't take care of yourself with our hypertension or diabetes, or we don't go for a regular routine visit to pick up on early kidney disease. So prevention is also just as important as um, taking care, as well as taking care of complications from kidney disease when it occurs, right? So mm. prevention is one of the biggest part. And part of that prevention journey is having a primary care provider who can do your screenings, right? So who can look at your urine and determine if you have early signs of kidney disease, who can check your blood pressure to make sure if you have hypertension or if you're pre-hypertensive to start making sure you have the measures to um, prevent progression to kidney disease or diabetes, checking to make sure you your glucose, your blood glucose is normal. And so that's the, those are the two common reason why people have kidney disease in the adult world is diabetes, hypertension, especially if they're not well controlled. Um, in pediatrics, it's a little bit different where most of the kids and babies I take care of have kidney disease because they were born with abnormalities of how their kidneys and their bladders were developed. So they may have blockage of the bladder, blockage of the kidneys, um, just different malformations that lead to kidney disease. And then, so that's a larger part of the Pediatric patients we take care of um, at Connecticut Children's. Um, there's also a group of patients who have um, underlying conditions like lupus that leads to kidney disease, right? So we mm. take care of a lot of um, kids and um, teenagers who have lupus and young adults with lupus that have kidney disease as a result of lupus. I didn't know kids conditions. could get lupus. Did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. As young as, as, young as five. Yeah, wow. Boys, girls. Yeah. So you'll be surprised about the conditions. Kids have hypertension. We do take care of kids who have high blood pressure. And so, and even babies who have high blood pressure. So we have neonates and small babies who also have high blood pressure that the kidney doctors take care of. Wow. Um, so we take care of a array of kidney diseases and conditions that can lead to um, impact in kids' health in the pediatric world. So you're the newly minted inaugural chair of the uh, the Robert R. Rosenheim Endowed Chair for Nephrology at Children, Connecticut Children. So what does that mean? I mean, I, yeah. I know it's a big deal, but I mean, you're <laughs> the first one to sit in this yes. in this role. Yes, and and I'm very and I'm truly honored that the Robert R. Rosenheim Foundation selected me as to be um, the first inaugural endowed chair in our organization. I um, mean, especially for nephrology in our organization. And what an endowed chair means in general is that. The, um, and specifically for the Robert R. Rosenheim Foundation is that they entrust um, additional resources, financial resources to put in a fund together 
that allows for me to carry out the work and for our division to care of nephrology to carry out the work of continuing to um, either perform research, clinical or bench research to provide resources, um, to provide education, to develop programs, to support um, our initiatives in kidney disease in kids. And so that can range from dialysis, transplant, or any aspects of those kids' care. Wow. So, that's so a, it just that's gives a us high, the flexibility. That's a high honor. And, yeah. and a high honor for such a young woman. Yes, very young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's exciting so, because it gives us more options of and, and more impact for the work that we do. Yes. Okay, so, so tell me what's the best thing about what you do. The best thing in what I do, I would say working with kids every day, mm-hmm. irrespective of whatever conditions they come with, kids and their families, um, they inspire me to work even harder and they inspire our entire group to work even harder to take best care of them, right? Despite the circumstances. So even when we have kids who have challenges with kidney disease, um, need and transplant on dialysis, um, their fight inspires me to fight harder for them, inspires our whole team to fight harder for them and to make a difference. And so that that excites me every day to go to work because Mm. of that fight. So Dr. Mason, are there resource dollars out there for 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 the for the research around kidney disease, particularly around children, but adults too? Like is it is kidney disease at the same awareness level as say some other disease that we are aware of? Like we all know it'll go red for heart disease, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We all know pink ribbons for breast cancer. Yeah. What, how do we how do we how do we look at where kidney aware kidney disease awareness is? Yeah, no, there's still more strides that need to be made with kidney disease awareness, whether it's in the adult world or the pediatric world. And that's why the American Society of Nephrology, along with the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology, um, have initiatives, kidney health initiatives, to move that agenda forward, to get more funding from the NIH, to get more funding from other organizations. Also, a large part of that initiative is the National Kidney Foundation. And I'm also a board member of the Connecticut and New York chapter of the National Kidney Foundation to move those initiatives forward. So there are, for example, locally with the National Kidney Foundation, we have walks. And with those walks, we um, raise funds. So with from donors like yourself or others in the community to raise funds for those initiatives. So there's many opportunities to do so, but you're right, the exposure and the awareness is important. And that's why March being um, kidney, World Kidney Month, uh, kidney, National Kidney Month, as well as today, March 9th being World Kidney Day is important to carry that mission forward. So it's interesting to talk about Jamaica. I have colleagues who are in Jamaica, who is a pediatric nephrology, who are raising the banner even in Jamaica about World Kidney Day today, being World Kidney Day and making sure there's right. exposure. So it's a, it's not only local, regional, but also international that we're raising that banner in awareness. Wow. And continue to do so. So there's a challenge that's out there, Babs. There's a 850 <laughs> million, because 850 million individuals worldwide that's um, that's impacted by kidney disease, which can be a silent um, disease at times before it becomes very evident that someone has chronic kidney disease. 8,500 steps is one of those initiatives, drinking more water, making sure you're drinking in more water. So I can definitely share that so you can share it with the group at large in terms of what is that challenge for the American Society of Nephrology to engage the community at large to participate in that awareness with different um, challenges like drinking more water and fluids because that's helpful for your kidneys. Walking, 
because that's helpful for your heart, which leads to better um, kidney function. Mm. So, so when you, when you, when, when we're talking about uh, kidney and um, do you have conversations with other, other doctors around uh, how to approach kidneys? Like, do you have conversations with the heart doctor, you know, the cardiologist and are you having conversations with the other people to talk about, well, when people do this, this helps this. Mm-hmm. And when people go over there, this helps this. I mean, because oh, yes. it seems like that's a holistic approach. Yes. And I think that's the approach we definitely take at Connecticut Children's Medical Center at large because, and that's part of going back to your question about what do I love about what I do? I work in an academic center where I work with other colleagues in other disciplines. So whether it's heart, um, cancer. Um, so we take care of patients and collaborate a lot together to take care of our patients and looking at the holistic approach, right? So like I always tell my patients when they come in and said, you know, when they said, Dr. Mason, my back hurt, it must be my kidneys. I said, well, you're not two kidneys walking around on legs. You're a whole body. So we have to think about interplay of other parts of your body. And it doesn't mean your back pain is kidney pain, right? And so I say, you're a whole person, you're a whole body. Let's really investigate what's going on and not just saying it's a kidney alone. And so we do collaborate a lot with our colleagues. So for example, when we go back to childhood lupus, I collaborate with our rheumatologist who sees patients who have systemic lupus. And if they have lupus um, impacted their kidneys, we collaborate with them as well. Um, so that's mm. just one example. Our patients who have cancer, because some of the chemotherapy not only improves their outcomes with cancer and um, getting their tumor or their um, leukemia under control, but it also can com- impact kidney health. So we do work with our hematology oncology colleagues to do that. Um, some of our patients have sickle cell disease in hematology, and we do work because they, the sickle cell disease process itself can impact their kidneys negatively. And so we do work together in terms of some preventative, preventative strategies to help some of our patients who have those conditions. So we definitely cross collaborate across different disciplines throughout the organization at large. Mm. So Dr. Mason, tell me, where, where would you like to see um, nephrology research go? Like what, what would be, if you could have anything that you want in terms mm-hmm. of a cure or whatever, where would you, where would you imagine? And then tell me where we are now uh, en route to curing any, any mm-hmm. kidney disease. Yeah. I would say, you know, kids sometimes, and I'm always going to put the banner up for pediatric kidney disease because I'm a pediatric kidney doctor. Um, And there's a lot of good research going on in the kidney community at large. Um, But you're right. There's a lot of things we don't have cures for. We're just managing chronically. One of the biggest opportunities in terms of kidney replacement therapy, so specifically related to kidney transplant, right? I, there are um, colleagues across the world and also nationally who are working on identifying how to make a new kidney for transplant so that you don't have to necessarily donate a kidney, right? The kidney is wow. a complex organ. And so it's very challenging to recreate what someone's natural kidney would look like in that setting. But there are people hard at work at doing that. And I would say that would be my wand, right? Because if we can recreate what God naturally gives us, even though that's very challenging and that's a very lofty goal, right? Because no one can do that really truly, right? So the impact of how we were born. But if we could ever even get close to that, I think that would make such a big impact in the lives of our kids and adults with kidney disease, right? Because they can have a renewed life. Um, Because what I think a lot of individuals don't realize is even if you have a current state, when you get a kidney transplant from a donor, a kidney transplant, even with best health and taking care of a kidney transplant doesn't last for your entire life. It's very likely you'll need another transplant um, over the years. 
after um, a number of years, 10 to 20 years, depending on what type of transplant you have. And so if I had to wave that wand, I would say a cure would be be able to create a neo kidney or a new kidney that could replicate what someone's natural kidney would look like and without need for them to have multiple transplants throughout their life. Wow, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. So, so I, I can I can I dream that people are working on that? People are already working on it, but it's They're a very it's a very it. challenging and daunting task. Because just like I said, you know, we we're not gods, and so we can't exactly do precisely what God did, but we can try to work hard to match and get try to attain that. But we probably won't be able to do that perfectly. Mm. And so I imagine, Doctor Mason, that you you stay on top of all this latest information that that mm-hmm. is out there in terms of uh uh kidney health health and kidney treatment and 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 uh drug drug trials and all the things that um can support and sustain life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we definitely have to. So the way how as colleagues in nephrology how we do that is there are different research consortiums across the country and international that we're involved in. So at Connecticut Children's, each of us are involved in different research initiatives, but doing it collaboratively. So when it comes to pediatric kidney disease, there's not a lot. When you look at the actual numbers, um, the numbers are not as large as adults, right? In terms of how many kids that we have that have kidney disease compared to adults in the same with the similar conditions. And so we have to work collectively and we do that across the country with our research meetings, annual research meetings. Um, offshoots from those research meetings where we have smaller meetings, where we, we have like-minded individuals looking at different aspects of kidney care and kidney disease to move the research forward, to move the education forward, to move the awareness forward. So there's a lot of work that's been going on besides just seeing patients every day. So for example, um, the end of this month, I'm actually going to one of those research consortium with rheumatologists to look at kidney disease when it comes to autoimmune disease and lupus and all those things that impact and working nationally with that group. Um, to mm-hmm. to move that research and work forward. So so as we end this conversation, I always ask, particularly my girlfriends, um, mm-hmm. how do you take care of yourself? Because I listen, you are a black great woman question. doing a great many things. You have a home, a husband, a child. I mean, you have a grown child, but still, we we don't <laughs> stop mothering. Uh, and yeah. and you have social and civic commitments. How yes. does Shireen, Doctor Mason, take care of herself? I think one thing I realized in terms of where I am right now and some of the achievements I've had in success has to do with being grounded by my community, just like you said. So even though it's still more work, right? But most people say, well, if you have the community where you're doing community service and civic engagement, that's additional work. But actually, those are the work that also brings me more joy and renewed strength. And so to me, it doesn't feel like work because those are things, again, going back to my childhood, that's where my foundation was always, right? Going back to my childhood, I always loved to care for others. I always loved to be involved in my community. And so that's how I renew myself. My girlfriend groups, including yourself, Babs, right? <laughs> and I have different circle of girlfriend groups because of my sorority, because of the Lynx Incorporated, which I'm a member, because mm-hmm. of my Jack family, Jack and Jet Make an American Connection, New Haven. I have all these different girlfriend groups. My even, even actually, to be honest with you, so going to UConn School of Medicine, um, the years I went in the early 2000s, out of the class of 100, I would say, and it was a combination of dental and medical students, there was about 10 of us. So about, what's that? Um, One-tenth um, one um, of the classes, that the classmates who were of minority descent. So there was a 10 of us. 
So we literally have formed our own community of um, <laughs> friends. And we have actually, uh, um, initially we had a WhatsApp group. Now we have another group where we're across <laughs> the country. So these are groups of now first generation minority students from UConn School of Medicine um, who under the guidance of Dr. Marja Hurley, who was one of the first Jamaican and someone of African descent graduate from the School of Medicine at UConn. And she's the one that has actually increased the numbers of minority students at the UConn School of Medicine, still is there spearhead in that initiative. Um, we actually keep a group together to support each other because this is hard work, right? Especially if you're the only one or mm -hmm. one of the few, this is very hard work. It can be stressful at times. And so we have a community of us who are across the country, bariatric surgeons, lead in division, leading divisions in oral facial maxilla surgery. We have um, vascular surgeons, we have pediatricians, we have um, OBGYNs in that group. And we all real like really have the real talk, right? The real transparent talk about what, what that journey looks like in medicine, being of minority descent and supporting each other in those in decisions that we have to do and elevating each other and reminding each other how great we are. That is amazing. Well, I am so glad that I finally got to have you on. Yes. And and congratulations on this wonderful honor of being the inaugural chair of the Robert R. Roseheim, Rosenheim uh, at the uh, endowed chair for nephrology at Children, Connecticut Children's. That's a that's a wonderful honor and I'm very proud of you. Yes. And again, in honor of National Kidney Month and World Kidney Day, I have my water. <laughs> I'm going to go pour me another <laughs> glass of water. <laughs> now I'm going to be thinking about you all day. I'm like, okay, let me drink this water for Shereen because she, exactly. she told me today. So, so. As, well, as, thank as, you. As the West Indians would say, drink water and mind your business. That's, what That's right. <laughs> drink water and mind your business. That's the new tagline. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Mason. It has been well, an thank absolute you for having pleasure. Me. It was my pleasure. And I will see you soon. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> All right, my dear. Thank you. Bye. All right, Harry. It's a wrap. It's been an amazing day. Uh, it has been wonderful uh, having all these amazing women on for Women's History Month in March. And uh, uh, Dr. Shereen Mason is amazing. Um, she is as beautiful and as lovely in real life as she is on air. So I will see you all tomorrow. Uh, I'm back tomorrow. I don't know if I have, do I have a guest tomorrow? Let me see. No, I don't. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what we get into tomorrow. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Be safe out in these streets. Thanks, Harry. Bye, Paul. <laughs>